Welcome to State of the Art Southern Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Today, our guest is Jeremy Todd, a local singer, songwriter, musician, and performer. He talks to us today about his process in songwriting, his musical influences, and the corresponding feel uh, between different modes and media. Jeremy, welcome to State of the Art Southern Illinois. Thanks, Thanks for joining for us today, man. Thank you for having me. So for anybody that is listening or watching that hasn't heard any of your music before, what would you say is, is the style of music that you do? Um, I guess based on the artists that inspire me and what they fall under is like indie folk or Americana. Okay. So, yeah. so what it, what are some of the artists that inspire you? Um, the Avett Brothers are probably the main band that inspired this whole thing. My background is like being a drummer and like seeing bands or punk rock bands and stuff. And I remember hearing the Avett Brothers for the first time being like, I want to do this kind of thing. So initially that was kind of the thing that kind of sparked the idea. So that's a pretty big departure from punk rock drummer to folk so yeah. so what what in that sound inspired you to the point to depart so far from where you had been before that, that so i guess the premise of that is i was the guy in the band usually that they didn't love what i was playing when i was the driver is the dj was like the rule in most of those bands and i would play Nora Jones or even I would also play like Alkaline Trio and, and bands like that also, but Nora Jones or uh, John Mayer even, like earlier John Mayer and uh, Not Your Body is a Wonderland, but you know what I mean. Um, there was just something to those, these other artists that were coming out and I, I listened to so much stuff and I guess just kind of my taste evolved into... Um, as I got older, kind of regressed back to like what my grandparents listened to and stuff. My grandma would drive around listening to like oldies music, Buddy Holly, uh, the Everly Brothers, um, and then old country like uh, Hank Sr., uh, Ernest Tubbs, stuff like that. So uh, Buck Owens was a big, um, a big one for her. So and and on both sides, my mom and dad. So I guess when I heard the Avett Brothers there was a little bit, there was something about it that was punk rock to me about what they were doing. There was a lot of, especially their earlier stuff, a lot of like hooting, hollering, kind of almost screaming in some songs. But the the out-of-tune banjos and the out-of-tune acoustic guitars, but you're still getting like the beauty of the song, you know? And so I was just like, I have to figure out how to do this for myself. And I already played enough guitar to be able to write my own songs, but... I just wasn't interested until like I heard that and I was like, I got to do this. So so about that with them, was it so much about the sound or was it the storytelling nature of their lyrical approach? Both. I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of, of both of them, but like Scott Ava in general, just like his style, kind of the way he comes across. He's kind of mysterious in a sense. Um, so I was kind of found that, intriguing but so the sound the image but yeah very much the storytelling uh also it's very their songs are very vulnerable which most songs are but i guess being you know coming into my 30s and listening to a song about potty humor and stuff like that from like blink 182 wasn't the same as like listening to a song you know about like how family matters or, or something like that when, uh, especially after you have kids and stuff like that, I guess the Avett brothers just kind of hit in a different way. And I was like, I want to do music for the long haul, which no, uh, no shame to those bands that are, are still writing that kind of stuff. But I guess for me, I just needed to be able to write something that I felt like I could play when I was like 60 years old. You know what I mean? So, um, I don't know. I mean, those guys are in their 40s now and they're still doing a good job. So I guess I could have done either thing. 
But um, so it was a little bit of all of it. It was the look, the the sound, and the stories and the song. And I mean, this, the the stories is kind of the through line that I I gathered from what you talked about with what your parents and grandparents listened to. Sure, because those are all those are all artists that were very much storytellers. Yeah, um, and so bringing that forward. Um, you know, the Avid brothers who both their songwriting and some of their sound is somewhat reminiscent of uh, Bob Dylan and mm-hmm. and his approach and, and bring that forward to what you're doing now. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I loved listening to Bob Dylan. I can't say, I didn't understand how good his lyrics were until I was much older, you know. Um, so I didn't get like that kind of stuff, especially growing up in like the punk rock scene the the words just weren't as it it was pretty much on the nose the songwriting was you know um so yeah bob dylan tom petty even you know all all those guys um the way that they use the words and they're still like it's not the music isn't like super technical or anything like that but the words, there is a technicality, I guess, to the words, being a wordsmith, I guess. Um, that's just like really captivating. So for sure, that probably has more to do with it than anything. Um, wanting to be a good lyricist, that's when someone's like, man, I love your lyrics. It's like, oh, awesome. Because I'm my worst enemy when I write a song. I'm like, oh, this is stupid or, you know, whatever. So, Well, and as an artist, there's a, you're not going to get better if you don't have a, a view of yourself right. that is negative in some way. Sure. There's there's no ground to gain if you already think you're on top of the world. Right. Uh, and so pure, purely by the self-interest of wanting to improve and wanting to engage in your own craft further, having that, that reflective lens and saying, oh, this is terrible, but then being reaffirmed by people that listen to it and people around you and people that you care about Yes. Helps tremendously. Absolutely. I So the very first song that I ever wrote was called The Eager Movement. And I remember it was like a Wednesday. I had my boys um, who were old enough to learn lyrics and whatnot. But my son Jaden um, was kind of in the room when I was writing the song, singing the hook of the chorus. And he came back that weekend and he was like, who sings that What's the Rush Now song? And he was just kind of singing it back. And I was just like, that's I mean, that's my thing. I was just messing around with it. But I was like, that's when I was like, okay, that song's sticking. You know, like he remembered that. And I've gauged several songs like that. There's been certain songs. Um, my fiance, I have a song uh, that she likes that I haven't recorded yet. Or I did like a little demo of it. But she was like, at one point was like, oh, that's your song? Like, I thought that was like a tallest man on earth song or something. And I was like, okay, so I definitely need to do that song too. Because like those, when I, like I said, I'm my own worst enemy. So it's all pretty much throw away from the get go. And I was just like, ah, that sounds stupid. Or I'll, I'll get this idea that I think is so good and I'll record it into my phone. And then I'll go back and listen to it and be like, why did I think that was good? That's so dumb. You know, do, do you have a bunch of like random voice notes of, of concepts r- and ideas? There's like are... 112 in my phone right now. So, and that's just how I do it now. I don't really, I want to have the notebook with like, you know, cause it's like artsy, but I don't have time. I don't have time to sit down and write it. So it's usually always like, uh, audio recordings on my phone. I mean, that's the way Prince was. Prince literally had a recording, recording device in every room. Yeah. Of of Paisley Park, uh, including the bathroom, like to where if he got yeah. if he got an, an idea and an inspiration while he was using the restroom, boom, he'd record it before he yeah. even left the room. Yeah. John Foreman, I know uh, the singer of Switchfoot, he is um, and they're not a big flu- influence by any means, but he, his solo stuff for a while I got super into and he did it like a challenge where he wrote a song a day for a whole year and he said you know like the uh the reality of that is he wrote 365 songs 
and he had enough for one solo record and one switchfoot record so like 24 songs out of 365 like made it you know but that's really cool and and those guys where you hear their songs and you're like man i wish i wrote that song they're so good or whatever but to know that they have that many throwaway songs also is really well, and, inspiring and that's what they say about about painting and art as well is you can't become a good artist without having bad paintings right because yeah, you've got to you've got to have somewhere to move up from. You've got to have something to contrast from, um, and like we were saying, it's it's a way that you improve yourself and improve your craft. And if you don't, yeah. you know, get rid of the stuff that is terrible, to find the gems that are really worth saving. Yeah, definitely. I think even in those like audio recordings that are on my phone right now, there's there's so many that are bad but then there's so many that i'll go back and i'm like yeah i'll sing that every now and again so like i need to keep this chorus and maybe i can use it for something else or i need to keep this verse or whatever so or maybe what was a chorus becomes a bridge for something else and can apply to something else yeah or maybe two of those songs that weren't even like meant to go together it's like well i can use the verse from this and the chorus from this and make that work and maybe just change like a few words so yeah, it's all just, it's good to have. Um, I watched an interview with Paul McCartney where he was talking about his songwriting process. And interesting, interestingly enough, John Mayer also did like this Berkeley thing. And they both kind of said the same thing about songwriting. It was basically just like, there's no like right way. There's no like, sometimes it starts with the music. Sometimes it starts with an idea. Sometimes it starts with, a melody or some words or a phrase and you're like man i love this phrase so much i gotta put it into a song but if there was like a science to it then everyone would just write a hit song every single time they wrote something you know Um, so i mean again that's inspiring we watched it's been probably a couple years at this point we watched a documentary that the avett brothers had called may it last and they have this really really good song called i wish i was it's like I always say it's like the sexiest song I've ever heard because it's just, it's so well done lyrically. But when you watch May at Last and you hear like the early stages of this song and he's like, no, well, I was thinking like I would say like, you know, I wish I was like this shirt or something and like I put it on and like, and then, you know, she takes you off or something. And it's just like, it's so bad. It's so like horribly stated and it doesn't work for the song but then when you hear the evolution of it and what it becomes it's like that's awesome Mm because you know it's not always a home run as soon as you write it so and it um one of the murals here in marion it was a co-design between myself uh luke o'neill and sean vincelette and it came together because of a phrase, a message popped into my head. Yeah. And I didn't have the graphic elements quite worked out for it. And started playing with it. I'm like, this is this is the essence of it, but it looks terrible right now. We've got to figure it out. And the three of us bounced back and forth and threw ideas back and forth and redesigned and redesigned. And now it's this, you know, it's this cool messaging thing that's a circle that says life is art, live it. Um, and, and looks great. That's on the West side of the Marion cultural and civic center. Okay. And, yeah. uh, all the murals look great, man. Thanks all man. Yeah. Um, but, but that one came out of something that looked so like it was this horrible tacky, like floral design in the background sure. over this, like almost script looking writing that didn't have the right feel or vibe to it in any way. Yeah. And then it eventually the the idea and the concept was there, but then, it, it then molded into what it is now. And I imagine that's how book writing is. I imagine that's how, um, it's definitely how songwriting is. You know, it, it evolves mm-hmm. as you go um, and you find the right words and the right chords to emotionally support those words. And um, yeah, painting, poetry, all that stuff. It's an evolution, you know. I mean, I'm sure there's those handful of people who just get it right the first time. They're like, yeah, man, I just write that good. but Not every I, time. Yeah, I doubt it. I yeah. doubt it, though. Um, I mean, the Beatles had to somewhat be there 
because Paul McCartney's are John Mayer's held up pretty good. I don't love every John Mayer song. I love most Beatles songs are pretty great. Yeah. And so uh, Paul McCartney's saying, well, like if if there was a science to it, then it would just be every song would just be would be amazing. It's like every song is pretty amazing, man. So they had to have yes. something to it. Yeah. But then you watch the documentary and no, not necessarily. I don't no. know if you saw the Beatles documentary that mm-hmm. was on Disney. It was a train wreck for most of it. And then once it finally started coming together, who'd they get um, towards the end? It was like Billy Preston or something like that that came in. Once he started coming in and laying down like that organ and stuff and kind of like vibing with them, I felt like that's when everything really came together. And then it inspired them a little more because I felt like they were all kind of like burnt out at that point. They, they didn't were. care, you know. And they needed that fresh energy yeah, in there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that kind of stuff helps too. Um, but yeah, it's... it's so uh, for you, it it for you, your concepts, your ideas, your voice, your notes on your phone... Do those start with a lyrical idea for you most of the time, or do they start with a melody? Do they? Where is your process typically rooted from? Yeah, uh, it typically starts with a phrase or either a phrase or a melody. Like there'll be no words, but I'll know how I want to sing. Uh, the single fatherhood feels, for example, that song is. I mean, it it started from me just kind of playing back and forth between this like really basic country riff, you know, the bump, 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 back and forth. And I had the melody in my head, just that dun, 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 dun. And I just kind of had it, but I didn't know what to do with it. And the story of that song, um, in short, was I was a new father again, you know, had a new baby and I was working like nine hour shifts, six days a week at a retail customer service job. I had no time for music, wasn't writing, wasn't playing out like anything. And so I had this day where I had like that, the apartment I was in at the time to myself. And I was like, I got my phone out. I hit record. I was bouncing back and forth between the chords and just singing that melody over again. But every time I hit record, the baby upstairs, not my own baby even this time, the baby upstairs through these paper-thin floors and walls was in every recording, just wah, wah, you know. And at the time, it was super discouraging. I just, I was like, screw it, man. Like, I'm done. I put my guitar up. And then I just kind of remember pulling it out again, maybe like a few weeks later or maybe even maybe even later than that. Um, and just that, that first line came out the, the you know, that, what can I say on here? Can I say the lyrics? No, we're a little bit no. cleaner on okay, here. Okay. Yeah. Right on. So, but that line came out that, you know, the mm-hmm, baby was, mm-hmm. and I was just like, man, that's perfect. And I can kind of use that like the whole experience. Well, so I guess I'll just sit here and work this nine to five and give up on these dreams of mine it'll be fine, you know, um, a little bit of like self-loathing and like, you know, boohoo, but, but at the same time, and it's like, man, I bet so many artists go through that because you think you're going to do one thing and then things happen and you don't get to. And, um, so it all just kind of snowballed into this, to this song. And I actually, it's not about any of my own kids. It never was, but I think it's funny how people interpret songs because, I opened for the Way Down Wonders at um, Old Rock House in St. Louis. And it was shortly after, it was a few months after I had played this Wonder Down music festival that was in Macanda. And one of the guys from that festival was there and we walked in and this guy was like, you're the GD baby guy. And I was like, yeah. He's like, man, thank you for giving us permission to just not like being a parent sometimes. I was like that. Okay, you're welcome, I guess. That's not what the song's about, but you're welcome. Um, and I didn't tell him that. I well, think that's that's, that's a beautiful a beauty- thing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's the best thing about music is, um, I think Dave Grohl said it one time. Like he's singing a song on stage. Like when he sings Everlong, 
people are singing it back. 300,000 people are singing it back to him for a different reason, you know? Um, I think Howard Stern asked him in an interview one time, he said, my hero, that song's about Kurt Cobain, isn't it? He's like, no. He's like, no, I think it is. I think that song is about Kurt Cobain. He's like, well, yeah, I mean, if that song's about Kurt Cobain to you, then fine. I didn't write it about Kurt Cobain, you know? Um, and I think that is, that's one of the best things about writing music and, and listening to music is it's, it means something different to everyone, you know? Well, uh, Mark Morris of Mark Morris Dance Group, yeah. I was speaking with him and he said, you know, in a, in a talkback environment, whenever he's doing a talkback and, and talking to the audience about his show, anytime that anybody brings up, is this what that's about? And he's like, yeah. Yeah regardless of what they're saying, because he, he, he choreographed and created pieces based on his own outlook, but the, the beautiful natural essence of the art form is that however it speaks to you is what it's about for you right. and your experience. And, and whatever you can take from that is, is the pure means of connection, which makes that art great. Right. And again, that goes all across the board too. painting, um, books, you know, whatever, which I mean, books, maybe not as much, but I feel like you can comprehend a book differently. I mean, there's a lot of metaphor in a book and whatever, how that metaphor applies, Um, you know, whether it's in poetry or or standard novel form, there's a lot of metaphor in there. And however that metaphor applies or connects to your life in a way that makes you actually connect to it or have meaning for you is the true beauty of what we're doing. Look at the Bible, you know, Um, I remember, I can remember being in a Bible study one time and I can't remember like what I'm so like far removed from passages at this point, but I remember a girl literally crying. It was like a little bit dramatic, but she was like, I just, the part where like, you know, when all things are said and done, like the lions and the lambs will like lay together. And like, I think that's so cool that the lions and the lambs are literally going to be like laying next to each other. And so many people in the room were like, well, I don't think it specifically means like lions and lambs are going to like lay next to each other, you know, like, but I just, she took it literally. And she saw the beauty in it. And, and Yeah. And she saw the beauty and made her cry. So, and that's cool. And the other people that were like, no, dude, that's not what it means. I mean, they couldn't really say what it meant either. And I was like, and they weren't even necessarily agreeing, you know? Um, so, and, and I think that's cool. I remember the first time I read Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, and we were debating that in a in a composition class, and I was like, I felt I was stressed out because like there were so many opinions flying around that room, and I was just like, I just liked the book, man. Like, well, and Vonnegut beautifully leaves so much ambiguity for for interpretation yeah. within his work that that really opens itself up to that debate. Yeah, and that book was was great. Um, I mean, I haven't read like a ton of his stuff. I wish I could sit here and be like, oh man, I've read everything by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, I have a book called like Jailbird that I haven't even opened. We got it at like a rummage sale one time. You're like, the book, I don't know it. Um, but, uh, Cat's Cradle, I read that and is it Breakfast of Champions. Breakfast of Champions. So yeah. like, those are the three books I've read. And yeah, all of them are just like the best, you mm-hmm. know, they're all so good. Um, but then, I don't know, man. Yeah, it is books. But I guess to get to my point, it was just like it's it's that's another thing that all across the board art is just in general. Whether you're writing a book or painting a picture or writing a song or um, doing a dance, you know, an interpretive dance or slam poetry or whatever, it's it kind of can be interpreted different and make ten people feel ten different ways, you mm-hmm. know, which is great. But the important thing is that they're feeling and connecting. Exactly. That's the most important thing. That is why I do this. Which brings me to an additional like line of connection for you and your work. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've recently released two different music videos. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one, what are those two music videos? They, they correspond to singles that have been released already, right? Yeah. Those are both songs that are going to be on the upcoming record that comes out. Um, Tomorrow. Uh, yeah, tomorrow. So, so yes, Friday, May 27th. 
correct? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the first song that was released, it was released on Valentine's Day. It's called A Realistic Love Song. And it was about, I mean, the initial concept of that song was something I think like I, I was in a relationship at the time and I think the person that I was in the relationship with said something like sometimes love just isn't enough to be and I was like so you have to do all these things you know loving somebody isn't enough you have to do all these things to show them or whatever and um so that was the initial concept. The song isn't about the relationship necessarily or anything like those things that happened. I was just kind of going through my Rolodex of, um, you know, cliche things that people do, opening car doors, buying flowers. Um, and since it's about kind of a dysfunctional relationship, a love song that isn't traditional in the sense that it's like this great, you know, love story or, or anything um for the music video i i told kylie at half moon digital which is who did the music video both music videos um that i wanted to do something very wes anderson i love wes anderson movies um and his movies are very much about dysfunctional relationships to the point where you don't know if you're supposed to laugh or if you're supposed to cry or if you're supposed to feel good or bad about what's happening, you know, maybe minus Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's just a pretty feel-good one. But like Royal Tenenbaums, such an uncomfortable movie uh, for so many different reasons. And, um, and Bottle Rocket and I just, Darjeeling Limited, it's like my favorite movie, mm -hmm. one of my all-time favorite movies. And um, the dysfunction of the relationship between the three brothers, but then also like the mom and the, the dad that has passed away and like they're trying to find themselves on this trip. And it's just, I was like, we have to do a Wes Anderson concept for this dysfunctional love song. It has to be Wes Anderson-esque, you well, know? They nailed the cinematography because as soon as you said Wes Anderson, you know, I, I immediately, simply the color grading of of yeah. the music video is and that was all Kylie. It totally aligns yeah. with Wes Anderson immediately yeah. as soon as it comes on. Yeah, definitely. And then for the second single, which is the single fatherhood feels of Corey Dean, um, wanted to do something completely different. Um, the video just kind of starts off with like it's me looking in a television of myself kind of distorted playing music with with my band and but then like kind of zones out to me sitting in a waiting room waiting for this therapist to come and talk to me and that was like I remember when he very first sent me he's like here's going to be like the 22nd trailer for this and it was just kind of that very beginning of it and it sounds like I th I think when when he sent it, we were maybe, I was in like Target's parking lot with my fiance or something. And we just, we watched it and it was like, man, like we need to see the rest. It sounds like a panic attack, you know? And that's very much like what it is sometimes, you know? Um, and not to alleviate like, or, or to make light of, I guess, um, postpartum for like moms and stuff like that. But for like, for like dads too, I mean, like it's, both parents, it changes like your life for the good for the most part. But it's, I mean, it, it's, it sucks sometimes, you know, being a parent. And that's just kind of what the song was about. It's like, man, like I'm not getting to play music. I'm not getting to do this. I'm not getting to do that. But I think he brought some light to the video where like there's scenes where I'm like wrestling around with the kids and, and stuff like that. And um, I think my daughter Elowen's like loving mm -hmm. on me pretty good in one point, which is really, really awesome. And um, the the moment when she flips over the top of you, yes, it it brought it brought joy into underlying joy into the video as a representation as a counterpoint to some of the lyrics in the song. Yeah, it was yeah. really beautiful. The which way is that that good happened. because yeah. yeah, I mean, because. I loved that th that guy connected, the guy that spoke to me about the song at the venue. 
I'm glad it made him feel any way that he needed to feel um, or give him permission for whatever he felt he needed permission for. But the song is just, it kind of made me feel bad in a way. I was like, man, well, I hope people don't listen to this song and think that like, I hate being a parent or like, I hate my kids um, because of the, the title of the song even. I played that song for the very first time at this venue in Effingham called uh, Effing Brew. And there was a good crowd there. A bunch of my friends were there. And the kid that's playing bass with me now, uh, we used to be cousins. I have a pretty dysfunctional family. So I used to be cousins with lots of people. <laughs> you know, I feel like. Um, but Corey came up to me afterwards and said, he's like, man, that song hit me right in the single fatherhood feels. And I was like, that's awesome because that song is called The Single Fatherhood Feels of Corey Dean and that's like his name is Corey Dean Knighty and uh so and that just stuck I was like I'm gonna call the song that even though that's a pretty lengthy title uh, I'm gonna call the song that because that's I want that to resonate I want my songs to resonate with people um well, and it that title sets you up to to listen for a, a ballad, a story, uh, right? Like, what is really this? What's this about? Yeah. The single father. What is what is this guy's story? Um, and it's my story. I mean, the song is from my perspective in that certain point in my life. That's what most of the songs on the record are about. Something I was going through, and I mean, some of them are like embellished a little bit. It's not like all factual like man this happened or you're not singing a documentary happen. no exactly yeah. um but it, it it's all personal like reference though you know um which is good i that my favorite songwriters write from those perspectives i found out um at one point shaky graves who's a huge influence also but his most of his songs are not about him they have nothing to do with him I was like, well, man, that's a bummer. But he'll read like a newspaper article or he has this song called, um, I think it's called Cops and Robbers on his record, Can't Wake Up. And uh, it says, the chorus is crime. It's a young man's game. And he said he got into a cab and this taxi driver was just like, basically like bragging about this life of crime he used to live. And they're like, oh, so you're pretty you're pretty wild. And he's like, no, nah, man, not anymore. He's like, crime, that's a young man's game. And he's like, I remember just like saying that into my phone, like crime, that's a young, and that song is so awesome. And it just talks about all these different scenarios, probably from stories. But when I used to listen to his stuff, I was thinking like, man, this is crazy. Like the stuff that he's like been through or singing about or whatever, and not necessarily. But then you have artists like Jason Isbell who write, from a pretty, you know, personal, you know, it's a, mostly his stories and stuff like that, which I think is awesome. So, and that's something I want to do maybe with other records is not write so much from a personal standpoint, but I feel like most of my favorite records are the artists like Jagged Little Pill from Alanis Morissette. Like that record is so amazing because that's her story that she's telling from start to finish. And it's just like, dang. At the same time, there's a, uh... I was listening to a comedian on a podcast recently and he was saying, you know, what I'm going to put into my hour is, you know, the, the one hour act that he's doing. He said, I, I have to be careful as to what I'm willing to put in there because it's what I'm going to emotionally relive on repeat Definitely. for the next year and a half. Definitely. And so what you're putting into your album, what you're putting into the songs that you're going to be playing on repeat whenever you play out is what you're going to be living through in those moments over and over and over again. Yeah, for sure. There's a song on the record called The Difference. And it's, I wrote it from the perspective of my grandma, which feels weird to say, considering the song is about the difference these people feel in their kiss versus like other relationships. I feel like when you know, I've been in those relationships where you've like kissed someone and like, there's just not that magic, but it's, you know, it's whatever. And then you, you kiss someone else and it's like, man, like I, this is, I'm supposed to be with this person and, you know, and, and it never like fizzles out in the relationship or whatever. Um, 
And that song, I, I remember thinking about that. And I, honestly, I think I, I watched this movie. It's like an old movie from the 90s, maybe called Love Potion Number no. 9. And I can't remember who's in it. I want to say like Sandra Bullock's in it, but I don't know if that's true. I think it is. Um, but the kiss, when they drank this love potion, if it wasn't like meant to be or whatever, it tasted like donkey spit, I guess is like what they said, you know? And I just remember thinking about like that movie and this is just how my mind works, I guess. But I was thinking about that movie and watching that movie with my grandma and thinking about how she basically was married to my dad's dad. They got divorced when my dad was 11. And because my dad was a brat, she had no other relationship in her entire life, you know? And I was just like thinking about all these like really like beautiful things she could have had with somebody. And that's kind of like what the song is about. The song is about like this guy, like just, you know, kind of rubbing her, rubbing his fingers through her hair and thinking about this amazing life that they would have had together and, and, and being together, you know, through the death of one of them at the end of the song and, and, but just kind of like smiling and, and being, you know, enjoying all that time that they had all these scenarios that they had together and, but not necessarily from, it's not like, so it's not from my personal perspective, you know, but it's from like the perspective of somebody in my life, I guess, you know, um, which I think is important too. Um, but I guess to make the point, sometimes when I sing that song, it feels like super emotional. And then other times I can just like sing it and it doesn't, it's not that big of a deal. Um, so it depends on where I'm at in my feels and my mental uh, state. But I think that's important too. I think when you watch, um, to go back to the Avett brothers, they have a song called Through, Through My Prayers. And I've seen them perform that song and get like teary eyed. And I, I believe the song's about their aunt that they're never going to see again. And that's the only way, I guess it didn't, maybe the relationship didn't end on good terms before she passed. And like now the only way they can talk to her is like through their prayers and whatnot. And I'm just like, man, what a beautiful like song, you know, uh, the story is so good. So, um, but yeah. And that's uh, what you said there is what, you know, it depends on where you're at in your feels on how that song's connecting to you at the time. But what I don't know if all people truly understand about performing publicly and and and, and opening yourself up is yeah. that you're literally opening yourself up and opening former wounds and opening your emotions every time yeah. that you're up there pouring out. Otherwise, it's a flat performance. And so you you're you're literally opening yourself up so that others can enjoy it yeah and can connect but but you're sacrificing yourself through that yeah i have i have a lyric in a song that i haven't recorded that i want to record um but it's um i can't i can't think of it right now um but basically it just talks about like ripping yourself wide open like why all these people cut loose on a dance floor you know they're having the time of their lives listening to you sing these songs that are just like killing you to like relive kind of that's a super dramatic it's like every time i've seen those songs i'm like man this is depressing but but it is in a sense it's like man this is like not a good time when i wrote this song or um uh even the eager movement it was just like the first line is like about going through a divorce kind of, you know, um, I was raised to treat a girl, right. And I swear I'd love the same one all my life. I wasn't going to have the same life that my parents had. My parents have been married like four times a piece. And, uh, I remember when I was going through my divorce, I was like, man, I said, I was never going to be like my parents. I wasn't going to have this dysfunctional family. My kids were going to be raised ride in a family with two people forever um and it just didn't pan out that way and that but that song came from it part of it um and worked out good i mean you know for, for that tune 
So yeah, I think I think it's important to write from a personal perspective for myself. I think it I think the vulner the vulnerability really adds to like the emotional connection, whether you're watching someone perform it live or listening to the record in your car or whatever. So um, it makes it a lot more relatable, which means people are probably going to keep coming back to it, you know, hopefully. Yeah. And and that's not possible without that vulnerability. And right. Without... I don't think so. Not for, for me, it's not. Um, I don't, it is rare that I come back to a, in like 2002, I was like a poster child for this band called The Used. I mean, I had the shirts and like, you know, the, the look. I just, I loved this band. I talked about them all the time, kind of like I do with Father John Misty now, you know. Um, but I, I, I loved this band, but it's rare. Blink-182, Green Day, you know, I've listened to all these like pop punk and like screamo bands and stuff, but it's rare that like I go back to their songs now and it's like relatable to my my life now currently. But you listen to uh like the Avett brothers or uh there's a band called Mandolin Orange. They're called something different now, I think like Watch House. Um just super vulnerable songs or uh, most songwriters, you know, Bob Dylan Gillian Welch and David Rawlings, their songs are just like, they hit like this emotional trigger every time you listen to it. Um, and I might not always be in the mood for that. Sometimes you just want to listen to something fun. And that's when maybe you'll go back and listen to like, oh man, I remember when I was in high school and this song, you know, whatever. But um, yeah, I think for me, that's, a, that's a, a big part of it is like the emotional element of the song so i try to do that like with my songwriting for the most part um there's some i grew up in church i led praise and worship for like 13 years and had like this kind of falling out with the church and i mean that a couple of the songs touch on that a little bit um and i felt like that was important and but Part of me is also scared for like those people that I went to church with for like 25 years to be like, man, like, was this experience that miserable? No, but for songs, it's important to, I mean, it, to be honest about the story, but it wasn't that miserable, but. But it was in that moment. But it was in that moment. Yeah. yeah. When I had to kind of like step away from everything, it was like important for me to, because yeah, I hope people don't listen to those songs and like, man, this guy like hates God or this guy worships Satan or something like that. Because it's well, not even true at all. And you know, songs are songs have this beautiful aspect that essentially they're a time capsule of when you were writing it, the right, moment moments. in which you were writing exactly. it, not a span of five years in one song. Yes, and so there's an importance to, to understanding that that's well it, it may be relevant to some people at that moment and not, may not be at another moment yeah but it's that moment for you that has been transferred through through songwriting right exactly and that's what every one of these songs are they're they're not even um you know I, i'm in different moments now you know for some of these songs were written in 2015 so several years ago um but i felt like i had to record them and get them out on like one solid thing before i could move on to like the new songs you know i didn't feel right to not have these songs recorded and put out and not all of them were some of them were uh like three or four of the songs are like pretty brand new um you know within like the last year year and a half um, and then, uh, like I said, other songs are like 2015. Now, for you, is songwriting somewhat of a an emotional process for you? Like, is that how you process your emotions, or is it just a way of? Yeah, I think so. Um, and is that and is that where the importance in these need to go down? These need to be recorded as a as a as a means of closure for you. Yeah, and. Uh, 
Yeah, because I, I can be closed off. I got called recently um, not very empathetic. <laughs> There's a bird. <laughs> There's a bird that got taken out of its nest, brought up on a wire, uh, a phone line or a, or a power line or whatever, and dropped because um, my fiance was in a verbal altercation with the bird that took the bird from the nest and she was like having an emotional meltdown with this bird and I was like look baby birds like the likelihood that they're gonna live anyways is not very good like baby birds die a lot um and I don't even know if that's totally true someone listening might be like this guy doesn't know anything about birds I don't but I think I remember these robin eggs hatching on my porch one time and I went out there being very empathetic and made sure they were okay every day. Four birds hatched. They were doing their little chirp, making sure they were getting fed and whatnot. Three of them died out of the four, you know? And just, I was sad, but not much you can do. So I think I tend to be more closed off in like person, but then can like put something into a song. It's like how I'm really feeling, you know, about something uh my fiance also is like oh you never write songs about me or whatever i do i have them but i i want them to be right you know what i mean when when it's when it comes out I, it needs to be or like i might have this verse that's perfect or this chorus that's perfect the rest of it needs to measure up to the to the rest of it you know i don't want to just fin man the song started out strong but then it just kind of went off on whatever so yeah I think I think that's where my feelings always go is into my songwriting um I watched an interview with Rob Thomas one time saying that he had this perfect relationship with his wife and it wasn't working out for his songwriting so he would pick fights with her so he could write songs or make up with her from the fights so he could write a song about that experience or whatever. And I thought that was kind of, kind of cool. And that's, I don't do that or anything, but I think, yeah, I think, I think most artists are kind of closed off, like emotionally, like in person and then, but can write these like really good songs are comedians. Comedians sometimes are some of like the most backwards people that you'll meet, you know? And, um, but then you'll hear their comedy and it's like, man, they're like a, they're a real person, you know? Um, because the stuff that they're talking about is so like deep. I feel like comedy is not the same now as it was like when you used to watch like Robin Williams or Eddie Murphy do stand up and like telling my age now, but yeah, but it's really evolved. It's, it's, it's yeah. become a, a storytelling for sure, uh, a, a vehicle as well that, that the storytelling has, highs and lows and yeah. uh um, Mike Berbiglia who we were speaking about before the podcast yeah. and he, the nature of his comedy really follows that storytelling arc and and there's some emotional stuff yeah and but that that builds a brighter contrast to the funny whenever you whenever you as an audience whenever you're experiencing the lows with them and then the funny moment shines brightly above it. Yeah. It, it. It builds a, a more enriched experience for everyone there and, yeah. and builds more connection rather than, hey, we're laughing at these jokes with you. They come out with true fans who are connected to them in an emotional way as opposed to just, hey, you're a funny dude. Right, which is different. I know, which I didn't get into it as much, but like Bo Burnham, he put out that thing after the, the pandemic and I guess like tons of people related to it because it was basically just like depressed writing comedy in his apartment or whatever. Um, and I was also super tired when I watched it. So I probably need to go back and like give it another chance. But my initial response was like my son was like, man, it was so good. And like, just so like, and I was just like, I mean, I watched it and I fell asleep, man. I was not digging it. But then you watch Dave Chappelle who's like, you know, super controversial or whatever, but sometimes I feel like there's this huge message at the end of it. It's like, he's been telling these like funny stories and some of them controversial, some of them just funny. But at the end, he makes like this point that is just, 
usually pretty good that you know we don't need to take certain things so seriously and just assume that everybody's out to get us because of a joke or because of a punchline or or whatever um and his stuff i've i've really really enjoyed um so yeah i think coming back to like the vulnerability aspect of it though i think comedians have really i don't ever remember watching stand-up comedy like in the 90s and stuff and being like man this guy's being super vulnerable or this is really emotional and now you watch stand-up comedians and it's like dang there's like a heaviness to this you know yeah i mean like back um, then you had like seinfeld and leno and exactly um, and they were great jokesmiths great and then and you move forward and you've got like mitch hedberg who who also had zero emotional vulnerability up there. He was just a joke smith and brought it one after another, after another, after another. His opening joke on Letterman, the very first time he was there, was like, dogs are forever in the push-up position. (laughs) Followed by, I'm aware that that joke's not funny. On Letterman. Yeah. And like the response was just kind of like, awkward and then he's just standing there being like yeah yeah you know and like david letterman loved him i think yeah. he's like one of the only comedians he's had back like two or three times versus like usually he just has somebody once and it's like one and done you know um but yeah that's a that's a perfect example there's not a lot of like emotion or like vulnerability to a joke that's like you know i used to do drugs i still do but i also used to mm-hmm. you know it's like it's funny yeah, he but, was he was a great wordsmith. Great, yeah, and and a great joke smith. But he, there was no vulnerability in his act. No, and whereas a lot of comedians today are getting a lot more real with people and Definitely. letting people in a lot more, and it's a different, it's a completely different game. You're there for an overall experience and connecting to a person, which is where it more closely aligns to music than I think comedy ever has. Yeah, is that they're taking you on an emotional ride in the same way that a musician is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think 10 years ago, I wouldn't have driven around in my car listening to stand-up comedy. I mean, Mitch Hedberg, maybe. Um, But now, um, we were on our way back from playing a music festival uh, this weekend before last, and we listened to this Daniel Sloss, who, who I talked about a little bit before we started this, and there's this one thing. I don't want to give it away because I want you to watch it, man. It is insane. But he tells the joke and then he says this really like insane thing about the joke. And he's like, this favorite, uh, he's like, this is my favorite part of the whole show. Watching 3,000 people or watching 3,000 people's buttholes just go. <laughs> And that's exactly what happened because he tells this thing and it's like... And then he just hits you with this shock value. Well, that's not funny. And he's like, and you didn't know whether to laugh and don't you dare laugh because it's not funny. You didn't know whether to cry and you didn't know whether to look down and don't look down because... And then don't... I looked up, but you're like, oh, but he doesn't believe in God. So I didn't know if I should look up. And it's just like, it's so awkward and he's like, I'm going to take a drink of water because there's still a lot of tension in this room right now. <laughs> and he moves away from it, and it's amazing. Um, it's one of the best stand-up things. For somebody that I didn't know, it's easy to watch like Dave Chappelle because he's so you know, in the media and stuff like that, and you want to see what that's all about. Or actors that are stand-up comedians like um, Bill Hader or uh, Amy Schumer and stuff like that. Sarah Silverman is hilarious but all of um, them started in comedy before they were actors yes i mean they're yes. they're they're comedians at their core yeah um and then they've they through their comedy have become an actor which is again back to that storytelling back to yes. that connection and Seth that emotional Rogen, role um who i guess started doing uh stand-up when he was like 13 or something like that he put out a book called yearbook which I've only read one chapter of, but holy, holy crap. It's, uh, he's talking about his grandparents and how he had no relationship with his grandparents. And he started putting that into his routine and his grandparents came to a show and he's like, oh no, but like, this is what I wrote. So I got to say it. And he said his grandparents were dying of laughter 
And he said, then they started coming to shows and they would get mad if I didn't talk about them in my stand-up routine. Um, and it just, it talks about like this beautiful relationship that it ended up giving him and his grandparents because he was able to be vulnerable through his comedy about this like hole that he felt like he had with his relationship with his grandparents that turned into be this like beautiful relationship that he had with them. And that whole first chapter is just about that. And I'm just like, dang, I feel like I just heard like, like a really good song, you know, or a, read a really good poem or, and it's, it's a bit, but it's not a bit because it's factual, but used to bits weren't so vulnerable. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was just, especially in the nineties, it was lots about just like making fun of things that like we can't make fun of anymore or we can't say anymore or whatever. Um, and yeah, it's cool. But there's a beauty to being, to being funny in a more creative and a more vulnerable way. Definitely. It's um, comedy. I don't know that it used to be considered like an art necessarily. It was just a guy getting up there talking about it artistic in the way that it's someone's perception of like the world that they live in. But now it is, it's, it can't be argued. I don't think at all. It's definitely art. Mm -hmm. Comedy is art. So. Well, Hey Jeremy, thank you for joining us today, man. This has been great. It's been great hanging out and we look forward to exploring your emotional vulnerability whenever the album drops tomorrow. Please do. Yeah. Um, and it, I assume it's going to be available on all streaming platforms, all and streaming platforms. So yeah, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, Deezer. I don't even know what Deezer is, but is one I distribute or I uh, the di- I released it myself through DistroKid, mm-hmm. and they put it on all these platforms. And I don't know half of them, but Spotify and Apple Music are the big ones. That's usually what I promote, but it's on everything. So um, if you're like Neil Young and have some beef with Spotify. Kick over to Apple or Kick to, over to Apple or, to or Google yeah, or to exactly. Amazon Music um, or wherever. But yeah, uh, it's it's gonna be on everything. And then uh physical copies, I'm working on that. It's a crazy they'll come. yeah, they'll come. And uh I'm working on setting up some type of a record release show as well. Awesome. So, yeah. Thanks for joining so, us today. Yeah, thank we you. We appreciate having this conversation and, and sharing so much about your process with us, man. Definitely, man. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for State of the Art Southern Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural and Civic Center, focusing on artists, artisans, musicians, arts organizations, and arts events in Southern Illinois, as well as national touring artists coming to the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Special thanks to Jeremy Todd for being our guest today, as well as providing the soundtrack for today's episode. Additional special thanks to A.J. Rice, our associate producer. Catch us here every Thursday, for new episodes on whatever podcast platform you like to listen.
Tell her.